you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 29, and we've talked throughout the sermon series about how the book of John can be as simple, uh, as shallow for a a brand new believer to see the truths of God, but it also can be as deep uh, for a theologian to get to get lost in, to really be drowned in. So this morning, we're actually going to go fairly deep. There's a lot of content in this passage, and we're not just going to skip over the surface. We're actually going to go under and, and dive deep. So John 5, 16 through 29, that's on page 890. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're here before you as your assembled church to listen in faith to your word explained and taught and proclaimed. And we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to show us what we need to see in your revelation. We, we fully confess that this is your inspired word to us. And we want to see what you are telling us in this passage. So Father, help us to understand it and help us to apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain key words or phrases that can put us on guard. If someone comes up to you and says, "Um, Hi, how are you? And then they start engaging in small talk Uh, We wouldn't be put on guard at all. In fact, that's a very bland, normal greeting. No red flags at all. But on the other hand, if someone came up to you and opens with, I need to ask you a question, that, that would immediately put us on notice that this person has something specific they want to talk to you about. They're not interested in small talk. They have an agenda. And so we might ready ourselves by thinking, oh, I wonder what they want to talk about, or I wonder what their question is. I hope I can help them. I hope I can have the answer to that question. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I hope it's not personal. I really don't know them that well. Or or maybe, depending on the context, you might think, I know what this is about. On the other hand, if someone comes to you and says, I need to talk to you, and you might want to sit down first. Then, then the alarm bells are going off. Now, now we know something is, is coming. We're, we're expecting something big. In fact, when someone says, I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you, but if they start off with saying, I think you better sit down first, you're, you're probably expecting some sort of shocking news. Something that's going to be um, disquieting. And regardless, we're we're under the understanding that whatever is about to be said, we're in for a serious conversation. In John chapter 5, 16 through 29, it would have been totally appropriate for Jesus to tell the Jewish leaders, you might want to sit down for this. Because what he's bringing to them is big, it's shocking, and the conversation is extremely serious in nature. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's done enough teaching and and, and preaching. He's done enough uh, signs, and his incarnate ministry has been active long enough that the the Jewish leaders have figured out that he's a threat. 
He's a threat to their status quo. They're seeing things and they're hearing things that they do not like. And at this point in, in John 5, after this healing of the paralyzed man, Jesus uh, could have addressed their concerns. He could have tried to assure them at this point. This is, this is kind of like a juncture point. He could have come up to them and said, you know what, I think we got started off on the wrong foot. Um, I, I can see how I came across like that, but let me, let me assure you, I didn't mean to, to offend you. Um, I, I can see how you've gotten the wrong impression. This is just a big miscommunication. But he doesn't. Uh, Jesus didn't walk it back at this point. He didn't, he didn't flinch. Instead, he approaches them head on. And what, what he says in this passage could be compared to dropping the uh, linguistic nuclear bomb on them. This is big. It's shocking. It's serious. In fact, this address is probably the longest and, and strongest and clearest Address recorded for us in the Gospels of Jesus speaking to his equality with God the Father and his authority and his divine power. So we have to pay attention to this. It has, it has strong, uncompromising implications for those who are not in Christ and yet who claim a spirituality or a religiosity. And then it also has implications for us as believers. Uh, in fact, based on this teaching, we may want to reconsider giving the spiritual benefit of doubt to people. And I'll explain what I mean by that later on. So let's go ahead and read John 5, 16 through 29. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath but Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is, himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
We begin in verse 16 with some, some Jewish hostility. It says this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is a good tie-in with our passage that we looked at last week, 1 through 15. Um, this was the healing of the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he missed an opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. So that healing took place on the Sabbath, and that's what angered the Jewish leaders, because they held what Jewish Jesus was doing was unlawful. Of course, it's not against the law of God or the word of God to heal on the Sabbath. It's against the law of the Jewish leaders and the word of the Jewish leaders to heal on the Sabbath. That's what the problem was. To, to shed a little light on their, on their attitude on this topic, we can look at Luke 13, 14, which says, but the ruler of the synagogue, synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done, Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So you can see how they're trying to manage Jesus. They're trying to limit his acts of mercy and his healing because it didn't match what they said. It wasn't against God's word. It was against what they had put in place around God's law. Their own invented man-made rules for living. So essentially, they were accusing Jesus of breaking the fourth commandment because he was going beyond what they had interpreted the fourth commandment to include. And here's his answer. My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's go ahead and unpack that so we know what he's talking about. My father is working until now. Now somebody might raise a hand and say, now hold on a second. I thought in the beginning, in Genesis, it said he worked six days and then he rested on the seventh day. But now he's, Jesus is saying he's working. So, which is it? Genesis 2.2 does say this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So this tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in the span of six days, but then on the seventh day he rested from, it says, the work that he had done. Two times in that one verse it says his work that he had done. And if that wasn't clear enough, the very next verse says this, Genesis 2.3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God indeed did rest on the seventh day. He rested from his work of creation. That was a one-time, non-repeatable event. God will never create the universe and everything in it like he did at the beginning in Genesis 1. Now there's going to be renewal. There's going to be transformation. And God's word tells us that God is going to make all things new, but he's not going to make all new things like he did out of nothing in the beginning in Genesis. That's just not going to happen again. That was a one-time, non-repeatable event. So the point here is that God rested from his initial work of creation, but he did not stop working. After uh, Genesis 2, 2 through 3, where it says he rested, it doesn't mean that God ceased all activity or that he shut down, or shut off. God does not have an off button. 
He rested from his works of creation, which serve as a pattern for us when it comes to our observance of the one day and seven Sabbath pattern. Exodus 28 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So it's true that God rested from his creative works on the seventh day, but he does continue to work every day. He does so continuously. God providentially continues to uphold his creation. What is providence? We can turn to our helpful friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's providence is his complete, holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing every creature and every action. So scripture tells us that God upholds the universe. It upholds, he upholds the, the world by his power, by the word of his power. It tells us that he makes the grass grow for the livestock. It says that he calms the sea and, and calms the storm. He's in charge of the ocean and the waves and the weather. There is not one molecule in the deepest part of the ocean or one atom in the farthest reaches of the universe that is not under continual, watchful care and control of God's providence. Not only did he create the universe and everything in it, but that he has decreed everything towards a certain end, and he providentially cares and works things so that they eventually meet that end. It is impossible for things not to turn out the way God has eternally decreed them. So if God were to shut down or to stop working, to remove his upholding providential hand for one instant, the universe would just simply implode. It would collapse upon itself. So that's what Jesus is referring to, among other things, when he says that my father is working until now. But that wasn't the part that they would have to sit down for. The, the part about father is working. They, they, they probably could, could let that go. Jesus is making an assertion of his own divinity. He's saying whatever the Father has the right to do, the Son of God also has the right to do. God the Father works. He causes the sun to rise on, on the Sabbath day, so also the Son works. He heals uh, people on the Sabbath day. Jesus is telling them, point blank, whatever the Father can do, I can do that was a statement of divinity. What he's really saying was, I am equal to God the Father. Now that is a, just a flat out assertion of his, of his divinity. And they got it. They understood it. Look at verse 18. It says that's why they were seeking to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they heard that message. They understood his statement. And this is where he could have walked it back. This is the opportunity. If at any point Jesus wanted to say, you know what, um, my mission here is really to just love on people and to give people a good example of what it looks like to be a nice person. And I don't want to cause any waves, so I think I better just tone it back and, and not go any further with this right now. They're not ready for it. No, no. Instead, he presses forward. And this is what he has to say about himself and the Father. Verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Because the father and the son are so united, there is nothing that the son does independently or separately from the father. The son does only what pleases the father. Jesus never strikes out on his own and does something of his own initiative apart from the Father. They are equally divine. They share the same purpose, the same power. In fact, this, this teaching is so clear about their union that the church, based on Scripture, the historical church, has, has confessed that all three persons of the Trinity are of the same essence. One being. Three distinct persons, but one being. And these distinctions between the persons do not divide the essence. So we don't end up with three gods. One God, three distinct persons. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Greater works than these he will show him. So the Father loves the Son and has so eternally. The, the Son loves the Father and has so eternally. This is one of the essential characteristics of the Godhead is this eternal relationship, this eternal communion and love between the members of the Trinity. This language about the Father showing or, or, and, and seeing what the Father is doing, that's figurative, that, that's pointing to the, this internal, inseparable relationship and communion between the Father and Son. There's nothing withheld among the persons of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son, and always has. The Son loves the Father, and always has. But that love is expressed differently. Um, the Father is the one who shows and reveals. The Son is the one who obeys. The Father sends. The Son lovingly goes. So it's expressed differently, but it's, but it's within that relationship. And this is why Jesus can say in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because... Whatever Jesus does, he does in perfect obedience to the Father. Whatever we see Jesus doing, or whatever we hear Jesus saying, it is so close, it, it, it is a perfect uh, revealing of the Father that he can say this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am perfectly revealing the Father in all that I do. And greater works than these, he will show them. Well, these are the works that he just did, the healing of the paralyzed man. The greater works are going to be uh, mentioned in the following verses. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Once again, his listeners would have been okay with the first part. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. Okay, yes, we accept that. No problem. That's part of our, our good doctrine. We'll buy that. But they would have been shocked by the second half of the statement. So also the Son gives life to whom he will? This is another in-your-face bold assertion of his divinity and his equality with the Father. Jesus is saying, God the Father has the power to give life, so do I. This is referencing physical life, to be sure, to bring into life uh, to raise from the dead, Jesus is going to do that in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, But it's also a reference to spiritual life, bringing people from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, regeneration, being born again. This is a reference to, to spiritual life. 
Now the Jewish leaders must have been astonished at what was coming out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, we can imagine them standing there, turning to one another, saying, are you hearing this? The power of life? Who does he think he is? He's saying he's God. Correct. But he wasn't done. If they were reeling from what he said so far, Jesus continues. He he turns up the volume. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So not only has he made himself equal with the father, not only has he said he has power over life, now he's saying all judgment has been given to me. He's saying, I'm going to judge everyone on the last day. I'm going to judge men, I'm going to judge women, children, teenagers. I'm going to judge those who have lived in luxury. I'm going to judge those who have lived in poverty. From the east, from the west, north, south, it doesn't matter. I'm going to judge the the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. I'm going to judge those in the first century. I'm going to judge those in the 21st century. All judgment has been given to the Son. And to his listeners, the implication was not missed. Because they're hearing this and they're saying, okay, wait a minute, he's saying, I'm going to judge you. You, Pharisees and Jewish leaders, I am your judge. After dropping that bomb on them, he goes on, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now he's telling them, you must honor me the same way you honor the Father. You must worship me as you worship God the Father. If you do not honor me or acknowledge my claim to divinity, then you are not honoring the Father. If you reject me, you reject God. Remember who he's talking to. These these were the Jewish leaders. These were the people that were the the sons of Abraham. These were the people that were arguably the most religious people to ever walk the face of the earth, who thought of themselves as above everybody else, with the regular people. They, They were the elite ones, the separated ones. It wasn't possible to get any closer to God than them. And Jesus is saying, if you don't acknowledge my divinity, you are rejecting God. He, he, was, he was putting the arrow into their heart of their, of their identity. This, this is who they thought they were. And he said, you're rejecting God. And I think we're starting to get the picture. This is why in verse 18 it says they're ready to kill him. They couldn't stand this. It, it made them furious. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. A couple of things. One, here's our sermon series theme again. Jesus plus belief equals life. It's just that simple. But secondly, even to his enemies, even to the ones who hated him and wanted to kill him, he holds out the invitation to eternal life. He's saying, even you, who in your heart right now want to kill me, even you, if you turn and believe my word, and trust in me, then you will receive eternal life. Talk about a display of love and grace. Talking to his enemies. Verse 24, another truly, truly statement. A hallmark of John. 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's, this is just another way of saying it's, it's now. It, the hour is coming is now here. It's, it's now. We'll hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about the spiritually dead who hear the voice of Jesus. Not just physical hearing, but spiritual hearing. Hearing with ears to hear. We've talked about that before in this, in this series. Ears to hear. So ears that hear in faith. Ears that hear that have been spiritually awakened. Ears that hear and, and that result in, in going out and following Jesus in active discipleship. That kind of hearing. Whoever hears Jesus will live. Verse 26 is almost a mirror of verse 21. The Father has life, the Son has life. Verse 27 is a mirror of verse 22. The Father does not judge, but is given or granted all judgment to the Son. And then speaking of judgment, verses 28 and 29 close out our passage. And here's Jesus giving a window into what's going to happen at the end. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So do not marvel or be astonished, as they surely were, at what he had been saying. Do not marvel at that because wait till you hear what I'm about to tell you next. And here's what he's saying. There's a day in the future when all people will hear the voice of Jesus Christ and his voice will literally summon people from the dead and they will stand before him and they will be divided into two groups. Group one, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Group two, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now these two verses are, are one of those places in the Bible where it can be, they, they can call all, all kinds of trouble if we take them out of context. Because if you're looking at these verses, 29 in particular, if, they, if they're pulled out of context, and by context I mean not only the immediate biblical context, but the wider biblical context, the whole of Scripture. If they're pulled out, I think you can see how easy it would be for someone to try to teach salvation by works. Because as, it's, as it reads, it looks like Jesus is saying that at the resurrection, people are going to be divided into two groups. Those who have done good things will go to heaven, and those who have done bad things will go to hell. It seems like it's, it's saying that on the surface. Now, if you've been with us so far through the Gospel of John, then you know how many times John has referenced belief in Jesus. You know how many times he's mentioned believe, believe, believe. He's just laid them on top of each other at almost a couple of, maybe two or three times every page turn. Believe, believe. Belief in Jesus is the dividing line between life and death. So when we come to this verse, we've really got two big questions. Number one, why does Jesus say this? Why does he make it sound like if you do good things in this world, then you're going to be saved, and if you do bad things, you're going to hell? And number two, doesn't this contradict the rest of Scripture? I mean, even within our own passage. Look back at verse uh, uh, 22. 
to 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I mean, which is it, Jesus? What are you trying to tell us? So those are the two questions. Why does he say this? And doesn't that contradict the rest of Scripture? Let's take the first question. Why does Jesus say this? One word answer. Balance. Balance. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus knows that. And he wants us to know that. But he also wants us to know that how we live matters. This is a balance verse. This is an extremely helpful verse for the church because it teaches us that faith, saving faith, is not just a matter of profession. Saving faith is not just a matter of, in your head, believing and thinking the right things. Saving faith will always translate into works. Obedience. Following Christ is more than just lip service. He doesn't say those who have believed in good. He doesn't say those who agree in their minds with what is good, according to God. He doesn't even say those who appreciate it when other people do good things. It says those who have done good. So this is a terrific verse to bring someone who might be arguing out of spiritual immaturity that it's okay to profess faith in Christ and then live however you want. I distinctly remember one conversation with a, with a young believer, I believe they were in their early 20s, and they were telling me about this conversation that they were having with one of their friends, and their friends was arguing, I think sarcastically, but half seriously, from, let's say, 1 John 4.15, which says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And they were saying, see, I just confessed with my mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, that means, I'm, that means I'm okay. That means I'm safe. Leave me alone. I said it. And the Bible says if you confess it, then you're in God. Okay. So let's take you to John 5.29 and show you that it's not just simply a matter of saying something. When we say Jesus is Lord, that's not a spell. That's not a formula. That's not a magical phrase that automatically transports us into salvation. That's a confession that the Bible is, is understanding Come, that comes from the heart, a transformed heart. So Jesus tells us, I'm the judge, I'm going to be looking for good, the good you've done in this life, as defined by God. Let's make sure we understand that. Not good as the world defines it, not good as what we imagine it is, but how Scripture says, whatever Scripture says is good, that's, that's good. I'm going to be looking for those who have done good, and those who will be raised to eternal life. And I think it's also worth pointing out just how much weight Scripture gives to teaching that salvation is by faith alone and, and the, the emphasis on belief. Like I said, what is it? It, it just from the first five, half, four and a half chapters of John. Believe, believe, believe. How many verses are talking about belief versus how many verses are talking about good works being present on the day of judgment as evidence of faith? It's like 10 to 1 ratio, maybe something like that which tells us that God wants us to have this check verse, the, this balance of understanding that, yes, there will be good works, but also he doesn't want us to miss the salvation is by faith alone. That's where the weight of Scripture is. 
Well, that's number one. Uh, why does Jesus say that? Balance. Number two, doesn't this contradict the rest of Scripture? One word answer again. No. No, it does not. By stressing the importance of good works in this life and affirming salvation through faith alone, Jesus is teaching that all believers will bear the fruit of good works. Those who have saving faith in Christ, who, who follow Christ, will on the day of judgment, have good works as evidence that their faith was genuine. Now, far from contradicting Scripture, this is in harmony with, with the broad and specific teaching found elsewhere in the Bible. Look at Romans 8.30, for example. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So part of our salvation is our sanctification. And God will not skip a step in our salvation. So when he calls someone, when he saves someone, when he justifies someone, before we get to glorification, when we're raised on the last day, there is going to be a work of the Holy Spirit in our life that progressively sanctifies us and that will result in more and more fruit and good works as defined by Scripture. God will not skip that step. In other words, it's impossible for God not to do something he promises his people he will do. Uh, Titus 2 says that God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And so we read in Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Once again, Jesus is promising his sheep will be sanctified. They will be zealous for good works. And perhaps James states the relationship between faith and works the, the most clearly. I'm sure some of you are saying, why didn't he just go to James at the beginning? Here's James 3, 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we understand what James is teaching there. He's not teaching that salvation is by works. He's saying genuine faith will be characterized by good works. If you say you have genuine faith, but you're not following Christ, there's no obedience, there's no evidence that you're walking with him, then you don't have genuine faith. Because they go hand in hand and they cannot be separated. Well, this is a, a powerful passage. It's just packed tightly full of doctrine and theology and Christology and, and teaching on the Trinity. How do we summarize this? Let's try a, a one paragraph summary. After healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus declared his equality with God the Father, having the power to give life and the authority to execute judgment. Jesus affirmed the reality of a final judgment and how all people will be raised and assigned one of two eternities. And in the midst of this teaching, which was directed at his enemies, Jesus promised that whoever hears his word and believes in him has eternal life. Like I said a moment ago, this has so much in here. We could 
we could go a dozen different directions with the application, and each one of them would be good. If you probably listen to, to 10 different sermons, you might have 10 different main points that come out of this, or 10 different applications. But the, the main point, the biggie here, is, is what we're going to spend time on. We're going to have one application point. We're going to direct it towards unbelievers and then also to believers. There's something here for, for everybody. And here it is. Jesus cannot be removed from belief in God. Jesus cannot be removed from belief in God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Have you ever heard someone dismiss Christianity and, and Scripture and, and, and church and just kind of the whole package and yet at the same time appeal to their own Christ-less version of, of spirituality or faith or, or belief? Maybe something along these lines. I think I've heard a version of this, or each one of these. The first one, I don't go to church and I'm, I know I'm not exactly living right. But I'm not worried about it because I firmly believe that God exists and I know that he is love and I try to be as loving as I can to all people. Or, uh, I, don't, I know I don't talk about God because my faith is private. What I believe is, is in here, you know, where it counts. And uh, so I think I'm in a good place with God. Don't, don't, don't question me, don't push back. I'm, I'm believing in God in here. Or this, I, I may not be able to tell you what's in the Bible, but I pray a lot. I talk to God all the time. So I'm, I'm spiritual. Isn't that where we all need to be? I probably pray more than you do. Or this one, I, my parents are, insert your own culture. So I had a different religious upbringing than you do, but that's a cultural thing, right? I mean, God is God, no matter where you're born and what religion you believe in, they all, they're all the same. Or how about this last one? I'm not against Jesus. I think he's good. I don't have anything against him. I just think that God allows us all to find our own path to God. I mean, God's not going to send millions and millions of people to hell just because they didn't believe in the Jesus of Christianity, right? Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The implication here and the application here is trying to take Jesus out of belief in God is like trying to take heat out of a burning fire. It can't be done. You cannot remove Jesus from genuine belief, which means any religion or faith or belief system that does not center on Jesus Christ, anything other than faithful, historic, biblical Christianity is a one-way, first-class ticket to hell. Those are false. Not only are they false, God detests them because they dishonor his son. God is displeased with all religions. And that's why when we take our membership vows, we, we ask people to take this vow. We say, uh, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? That last line is extremely important. We're not asking them to, to make a profession of Jesus Christ um, as you imagine him. 
or, or as, as you've been led to believe by, by some other teacher, or, or believing in a Jesus that doesn't require repentance from, from culturally acceptable sins. No. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered in Scripture, as God has revealed himself to us? That's the Jesus that we must believe in if we are to be saved. So no one can claim that they love God or follow God apart from faith in Christ as he's revealed in Scripture. So that's what this passage is about. That's the main point. That's what Jesus was trying to drive home to his listeners, the Jewish leaders. He's saying, look, you guys are all about God. I understand that. You're, you're, you're pro-God, but you are rejecting me. And I'm telling you, if you reject me, you reject God. You cannot take Jesus out of belief in God. So that's, that's for, for anybody that might be here this morning that, that has a misunderstanding about world religions and faith and, and how important Christ is to saving faith. For us that are believers, I would say the vast majority of us here today, we get that. We are, we are pro-Jesus. Uh, that's not the issue for us at all. So how does this apply to us? I said at the beginning that we may want to reconsider giving people the spiritual the benefit of the doubt. And here's, here's what I mean by that. As believers, we are sometimes too eager to give people the spiritual benefit of the doubt. And let's define benefit of the doubt. To give someone the benefit of the doubt is to assume or treat someone as innocent, honest, or right when there's conflicting evidence or uncertainty. Okay? The, the, the guy shows up for the first day of his new job an hour late, and he says, I had a flat tire. Well, the boss doesn't know him. He doesn't have a relationship. He can either accept, okay, I believe this man is telling the truth. Come on in. Or he can say, I, I don't think you're telling me the truth. You know, if you can't make it here on the first day of work, I don't think this is going to be a good fit. To give the benefit of the doubt is to believe someone when we've got conflicting evidence. So, spiritual benefit of the doubt. When someone professes with their mouth, yeah, I'm a believer, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, but there's conflicting evidence. And I think sometimes we're too eager to give them the spiritual benefit of the doubt, especially when a family member or a loved one who we know is not in Christ they say something remotely spiritual or they make some kind of offhand comment about God or prayer and we jump to conclusions. We're so eager to give that spiritual the benefit of the doubt. We love them. We want them to be saved so badly. But even in the face of conflicting evidence where we see that they're, they're not in Christ, they don't have any evidence to show us that they, they have faith in Christ, we go ahead and give them that benefit of the doubt. And we deceive ourselves into thinking they're believers. The more you love someone, the easier it is to do. We don't want to confront them. We don't want to risk losing our relationship. I've heard countless parents say, I don't want to drive my kids away. I don't want to put a wedge. I want to keep a line open so I can still speak into their life. And so we tell ourselves, well, maybe they don't have it all figured out. Maybe they don't have it all together, but they have faith. And I saw that, and that's good enough. The scripture tells us that's not good enough. 
We want to lower the bar for them because we love them, but it's not our bar to lower. God has set that bar. And so I want to ask you this morning, is there anyone like that in your life? Is there anyone that you love or are close to, and by all external evidences, they are not in Christ, which means that if they died today, they would go to hell, but you don't want to think about that, so you cling to the hope that somehow, somewhere, sometimes, somebody shared the gospel with them, and even though they didn't tell you about it, somehow, privately, secretly, they're believers. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people who have lost a loved one or a family member and were either at the funeral or were talking later and they say, well, they never talked about their faith with me, but, but who knows? Maybe somewhere, somebody, somehow, sometime shared the gospel with them and, and maybe they believed without me knowing about it or, or maybe when they were lying there in the final hour, someone whispered into the ear and even though they weren't conscious, they heard them somehow and and somehow they believed. Is that what we want for our loved ones? I hope not. Do we want to keep giving them the spiritual benefit of the doubt in this life and then upon their death hope that somehow, somehow, uh, sometime, somebody shared the gospel? I don't, I don't want that. And I don't think you do either. I want to challenge and encourage you the next time one of your children or adult children or parents or aunt or uncle, sometimes when they say something spiritual, when they give you that glimmer of hope that they might be on the right path, but you know that they're not in Christ, don't give them the spiritual benefit of the doubt. Don't think to yourself, they'll be okay in the end. Don't think to yourself, well, they're on the right path. I think God will, God will keep them going. Don't accept an unbiblical personal belief as evidence that they're on the right track. Instead, explain the truth to them. Take them to John 5. Take them to John 5, 16 through 29. Walk them through it. Show them the centrality of Jesus Christ. Show them the non-negotiable exclusivity of faith in Christ for salvation. Let them know that simply believing in God is not going to cut it on the day of judgment. Let them know that their own personal belief system, whatever that be, is not enough. Let them know that being nice or a good person or loving is, is not going to pass. Let them know that all religions do not lead to God and instead point them to Jesus Christ. And don't let up praying for them. Don't, don't let up giving uh, them truth or speaking into them until they join themselves to Christ's body, the church until they're professing faith alone in Christ alone, until there are evidences and fruit in their life that, that, that match what Scripture says about believers, don't let up until you see that in their life. These words of Jesus to the Jewish leaders were shocking. This was big news to them. And at the same time, it was very serious in nature. He was telling them that if you're not in Christ, if you, if you don't accept the Son, then you're rejecting God the Father. And in the same way today, the world needs to hear that God will not accept anyone outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us in Christ, we need to take these words to heart. 
We, we need to stop being so eager to give someone the spiritual benefit of the doubt and instead take them to Scripture, speak truth to them, pray for them, show them Christ as revealed in, in the Bible. If you know someone like that, maybe it's time for a conversation. And maybe you want to start that conversation by saying, I have something to tell you, and you might want to sit down. Because I love you, and based on what I'm saying, I don't think you're saved. But I want to show you how you can be. Let me take you to Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ. We delight in your commandments. And Father, we thank you that life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, has been made available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior. And Father, I pray that if anyone here is here today who has not done that, that they would do that today. They would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Start walking with Him. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, would you graciously and tenderly show us the people that we love in our life who are not in Christ and give us the boldness to come before them and instead of giving them the spiritual benefit of the doubt, take them to Christ. We want to be sure that the people we love have had every opportunity to repent and believe. And we want to be used by you. What a, what a blessing, what a joyful blessing that would be on the day to be able to know that you used us to play a part in their salvation. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.